Romans 8, 17 to 30. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his suffering in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Friends, I've got to say, uh, this passage has been quite a challenge to prepare for. This sermon's been written and rewritten about four times over, not because it's sort of terribly complex or controversial, but actually because it's a part of the Bible that has had some of the greatest impact on my own life and it's hard to sort of tease out, gosh, of all of the richness that we have here, where do we go? It's a passage that I've wrestled with, I've chewed over, I've, I've clung on to, um, I've prayed in light of, I've shared with others in so many various ways that it's, it's kind of hard to distill down the key things for us to take away from it. But I think at its core, this isn't a passage about suffering or about predestination or about prayer. It talks about all of those things with really important things for us to, to learn. But at its core, this is a passage that speaks to us about the character and the power of God and that life with him, knowing him as our father, is worth it undeniably, overwhelmingly worth it. So how do we get into it? Well, I think actually to ask a really bold question. Because our passage last week finished with the great encouragement that we began with just now, that 
we have this wonderful encouragement that through faith in Jesus we are adopted as children into God's family. And by adoption, we mean full members, full privileges, co-heirs with Christ, the Son of God. But that wonderful reassurance came with a sting in its tail that Julie read for us as we opened there just now. Verse 17, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Pretty clearly, being a child of God is not a promise of a healthy, wealthy, comfortable life. It's a promise of suffering now and glory later. And it begs a big, bold question. Is it worth it? Is the glory to come worth the suffering now? And I think actually sitting behind that, anyone who's gone through deep suffering at different points will find themselves asking an even deeper question. What kind of father is God if he doesn't actually protect us from suffering? Is he unwilling to protect us or is he incapable of stopping it? What kind of God is he? And is a life of faith in him worth it? I think it's the kind of question that we might have asked ourselves in all sorts of different situations, whether it's looking on at the world around us in its conflict and its chaos. What kind of God allows it? Perhaps it's in our own experience of suffering or alongside someone dear to us going through hard times. And you don't need me to list off a bunch of ways that we hurt. We all know our own heartache. If this is life as his child, then what kind of God is he? Is it worth living as one of his children if life is still like this? They're big, bold questions and actually questions that God invites us to ask and to wrestle with. It's the very reason that Paul has written this for us. Because in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is lifting our eyes and through him God is showing us himself, the God of great assurance, our loving Heavenly Father. And I think, in fact, we've got three big reasons in what we've just read today uh, for why we know it is absolutely worth it. The the Apostle Paul was thoroughly convinced of this. The first is the longest, as Paul points us to the hope that is bound up in the children of God. And then we read about God's presence with us in the present. And then Paul zooms us out in those famous words that were the last paragraph of our reading today to see the grand picture of God's eternal plans. But we kick off with Paul's summary in verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And right there, Paul gives us a set of scales, doesn't he? There's a point of comparison. Our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. When you put the weight of glory and the weight of sufferings on a set of scales, it's overwhelmingly like this, and the weight of glory is far greater and that means one of two things okay two ways to understand Paul here option a maybe Paul doesn't really know what suffering's like (laughs) and and so he treats it quite lightly and, and it doesn't take much for the scales to tip but I think we can cross that off the list pretty quickly I mean Paul lived 2,000 years ago in an age before antibiotics and painkillers with death just so much more present in his face than we experience now But even Paul had actually experienced much more than just the everyday suffering of his time. We read about it in various points in the New Testament. Um, But just to read one together now, if we're unfamiliar with Paul, a summary statement in 2 Corinthians 11. He's not bragging here. He's He's just sharing the reality of life. 
Five times I have received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one, because 40 lashes was thought to be enough to kill a man. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was pelted with stones, three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. Uh, I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. I have laboured and toiled. I have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. So we cross off option A. Paul was not light-hearted about suffering. He knew suffering like I've never experienced. He's not trying to downplay or dismiss the reality of suffering. Option B, when Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul knows real suffering, but he also knows the weight of an even greater glory. And that's something we need to get our heads around. What is the glory to come that makes it all so worth it? Well, we read in verses 19 through 25 that it is a glory that is so great that it's the very hope that lies at the heart of all creation. Verse 19, we read, Creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. As I said, we've just read last week the wonderful news that in, through faith in Jesus we are adopted as children of God by the power of the Spirit. But what's being underlined here is that there is a sense in which that remains hidden in the present time. And let's be honest, oh, you and I, as children of God, we're pretty unglorious, really, aren't we? I, I don't imagine anyone new is going to be walking into church here and kind of putting on their sunglasses at the dazzling brilliance of a room full of the children of God, just so glorious in our splendour. They get a warm welcome, but they're not kind of blown away, thinking, oh my goodness, these guys are so obviously the glorious children of God. And I think it's actually quite reassuring that this is not all that there is for the children of God. There is more to come. In fact, the more to come is so exceedingly grand that it is, Paul says here, the thing that all of creation has been hanging out for, is primed for, is longing for. Paul gives us that graphic image in verse 22. All of creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth. Annika will be sharing uh, soon, at some point, that experience of deep hardship and pain, looking forward to something worth it. And creation has been straining forward in eager anticipation of the day when the children of God will be revealed, says verse 19. When creation will be brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God, says verse 21. What's it all about? Well, to get our heads around this, Paul takes us right back to the start of everything and he reminds us of why the world is the way it is. Broken, chaotic, hard, with suffering. And he's not being trivial about suffering. This is the, the real, the, the deep, the painful reality of the world that we live in. In verse 20 of Romans 8, we read that creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom 
and glory of the children of God. Here Paul is unpacking the impact of Genesis 3. The fall of humanity into sin and the curse of God on all of the world. If we read Genesis chapter 3, we see that in response to human sin, God's curse impacts on all of creation itself. You know, God blessed his creation as a, as a good creation to be fruitful and delightful, a life-giving garden. But in his curse, he frustrates that fruitfulness. Thorns and thistles instead of productive life. And instead of being a source of life, it's given over to decay and, and it becomes a, a place, a stage, a theatre of conflict and of suffering. The significance of human sin is so great that all of creation is impacted. Now, as a side note, I've found this, this summary in Romans 8, a really helpful understanding of suffering in general, whether it's my own, someone I love, looking on at the world. Because here God is teaching us that suffering and sin have a very real connection. The world is a place of suffering because the sin of humanity has caused this rift between creator and creation. And it impacts all of creation. But this passage shows us that there's a, there's a real connection, but it's also an indirect connection. Suffering happens because this world, all of creation, is under the curse of God for human sin in general, not because I have sinned in a particular way. Now, there are some times when we just experience the natural consequences of sin. For an example, the heartbreak of a broken marriage because of the sin of adultery, cause and effect and pain and suffering. But most of the time, suffering is just a part of life in a creation that is under God's curse. So, in a very personal way, as Peter and I wrestled with this just in the last couple of months, as my wife, Peter, was lying intubated in the intensive care unit at the Royal Adelaide just last month, it wasn't because God was punishing her for a particular sin. It was because creation has been subjected to frustration and is in bondage to decay and we're caught up in the midst of that and we groan we long for rescue actually Paul says here that suffering makes Christians groan even more than people who don't know Jesus there's that lovely little phrase there that he uses that we have the first fruits of the spirit we who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly because we've got a taste of new life with God and we have the promises of a new creation when the curse of sin is finally done away with. So we know things can be better. So we feel it all the more. I was trying to think of an illustration and then God gave us a week of lousy weather at the end of November, right? Because someone coming from England, you know, Chris Bright, he thinks this is awesome. Someone coming from Sweden, Jan and Christy, they think this is, this is glorious, let's be out swimming every day. But we live in Adelaide. We know what a good summer's day is like. We know what a beautiful day in the sun at the beach is meant to be. We know when you get, you know, really enjoy the warmth of summer and a good swim. And so we're groaning, looking forward to summer. Instead of 14 degrees and rain at the, middle of, at the end of November. Now that risks trivialising a really important point, but, but the point is that Paul's saying that as Christians, we should expect to groan under the burden of suffering because we know God's promises. We long for them to be fulfilled. We are groaning for the sin that Christ has conquered 
to be finally done away with. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan. And then there's this strange expression in verse 23. We groan inwardly, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And you should be thinking, what's with that? I know, you know Peter's ladies' Bible study group, they're, they're wrestling with this because last week we read that we are already adopted. This week we read that we're still waiting for it. That's actually a paradox, a truth that is right at the heart of life as a Christian, the New Testament teaching about life with Jesus. It is our present reality. If you know Jesus as your Lord, you are a precious child of God. You cry out to him as your loving father. It's a present reality, but it remains a future hope. That what we experience in this world that is still bound up in decay, we will one day experience in the freedom of the new creation. So again, if I can have a crack at illustrating this, to try and take something really profound and make it kind of simple for us, I want to show you a picture of Danaeus Plexippus, the monarch butterfly. You're like, no, 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 that's not a butterfly, that's a caterpillar. Well, actually, yes, this is a picture of Danaeus Plexippus, the monarch butterfly, just in its larval form, right? It's squishy, it's green. It's actually, as caterpillars go, a pretty cool caterpillar. It's got funky things poking out here. and For those listening to it on the podcast, it has yellow and green stripes. But it's squidgy. It can only walk, and very slowly, the thought of flying, if it, I don't know what they imagine, but I can't imagine that a caterpillar can imagine what it's like to fly. But one day, it will be brilliant orange, and it will be so radically transformed that this squishy green sausage will actually defy gravity and take to the air. And the monarch, it won't just fly a little bit. The monarch is an incredible flyer. Uh, the particular population that live in North America, our Australian monarchs don't have to travel quite so far because of climatic variation, but in North America they will undertake the longest two-way migration of any insect on the planet, travelling over 3,000 miles between northeastern USA and southwest Mexico. Colourful wings, flying, flying across a continent... It's a whole state of life that no squishy green caterpillar could even imagine. And yet, that is still a picture of Danaeus Plexippus. And I wonder if that's helpful for us to get our heads around the now but not yet reality of life as God's children. Because God has already done a remarkable work in us. The present reality is that he's given us new life in Jesus... Our present reality is that we are children of God. You could say, at the risk of overworking the analogy, it's like he's taken us from earthworms down in the mud and he's turned us into caterpillars. And bound up in us is the reality of God, what God will, will one day complete when he brings about the transformation of his new creation because we really are the children of God, but we struggle to imagine what it's going to be like to fly. But I think that also means that we're frustrated caterpillars. <laughs> we're longing to fly. Regardless of what goes through the heads of that squishy green sausage, God has given us his promises. And so we groan in eager anticipation. And that's actually why creation waits 
with eager anticipation too. Creation groans because our transformation will bring its fulfilment. When that day comes and Jesus returns and finally frees us into our glorious new creation, well, the curse over all of creation is done away with. And the nebulas and the supernovas will breathe a sigh of relief. And the trees, the psalms, depict them, will, will clap their hands in joy because the curse is gone. That's the hope of glory. That's what makes it worth it. But Paul's still not done because while we hope, the Spirit is present. Verse 26 says, in the same way, In the same way that the Spirit is being at work in giving us a new life in Christ, making us children of our Heavenly Father, in the same way, the Spirit is present with us in the waiting. We read there in verse 26 that we don't really know what to pray because we don't really know what is best for us. But God does. And His Spirit picks up the conversation on our behalf. I I have a vivid image of what I think... Is the hardest night of my life. I remember so clearly the night that Peter and I suffered a miscarriage at 13 weeks gestation after years and years of trying to fall pregnant. It was the hardest night of my life and I wasn't even the one going through the physical pain of it. But I felt helpless. And it seemed so hopeless and pointless and sad. And I honestly didn't know how to make sense of it. I can so clearly picture the hallway that I was pacing up and down, praying, asking God to protect Peter, to to comfort us in our grief, to help us to see beyond the heartache. But beyond that, in my grief, I didn't know what to pray. I couldn't imagine what God's plans were in that situation. But I did know that the challenge was... I was down in the swamp of that time of grief and loss and I didn't have the vantage point to see what God could see over the horizon, to know what God could possibly have in mind. But I'm so thankful that Romans 8 had been taught to me, (laughs) that I knew I didn't need to know what lay ahead. I didn't need to have the answers or know the game plan. I could just pour out my heart to God in grief and confusion and weakness, knowing that he knew. To put it another way, the encouragement of Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, the spirit who is present with us, who groans with us, who intercedes for us, is that we can rest assured that our future is not limited by our ability to imagine it. Our future is not limited by our ability to imagine it and then pray for it as if that good outcome that we really hope for, it'll only happen if we pray for it. And So we really need to know what's best for us so that we can pray for it so that God can... The Spirit is groaning in us too. The Spirit knows what is good for us, really good for us, and groans for what is good for us. And this is the God that can be trusted because God is so bound up in his good plans for his children, so present with us in the groaning, that God speaks to God about what we need him to do in us and for us. Even when we can't see in this moment 
how it all fits in his plans. What an incredible comfort that is. And that's before we've even got to the riches of verses 28 through 30. But do you see the sequence? Paul is pointing us to the great hope of all creation that is our hope. He says the Spirit is present with us in the midst of us and then he steps us back to show us from time before to time eternity. And it's simply making the point that that God is here in the midst of the suffering, in the fog of confusion, and his plans are sure and good and glorious. This is why Paul is absolutely certain that life with God as our Father is worth it. This is the invitation that we want to offer our colleagues and our neighbours and our friends and our family, that the glory to come so far outweighs the very real trials of this life. Wonderful words of Romans 8.28 teach us that God is both willing and able to work for the good of his children in any and every situation. Even when we have no idea how, we can't possibly discern any meaningful benefit. This is his promise. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now this verse gets horribly misunderstood at points. To be clear, this is not saying that all things are good. Cancer is not good. War is not good. The death of a child is not good. There are many things that are not good in and of themselves. But God has both the strength of character and the strength of arm to work through it for good. And so Paul zooms us right out to show this from eternity gone to eternity come. God's plan has been to build a big, beautiful family full of kids that share in the dazzling glory of his very own son. That is the ultimate good that he has for us. Whatever the journey holds along the way, that is the very great good that God is working for in us, to conform us to the image of his glorious son. And I think we struggle to picture that. A bit like an earthworm struggles to picture life as a caterpillar who can barely imagine what it will be like to fly. That is the good that God works for his children to make us like Jesus. That was his grand plan that actually required the frustration of creation and the sending of his own son to enable our adoption, something that we already have but will one day still look forward to its full experience. Because the father wants a big family. The son wants lots of brothers and sisters. And so we've got this this wonderful cascade of confidence in God's eternal plans because those he predestined, long before we reached out to him, he knew us and he reached out, he called because he's the father who brings us home. And those he called, yet these ones he also justified because he's the father who makes it right. And those he justified, these ones he also glorified Glorified by making them like his glorious son. Glorified because he's the father who will settle for nothing less than the very best for his kids. But he's the father who's got the long game in mind. So we started by asking a pretty big, bold question, didn't we? Who is this God who would allow so much suffering? Who is this God that says you can cry out to him as father in the midst of your suffering? 
That cascade in Romans 28, 29, 30 says that he is the one who's known you since before time began. He's known you and he's loved you such that he sent his own son for you. He's loved you and pursued you such that he has worked through the very circumstances of of all of history and the people and the circumstance and the time and the place in this frustrated and decaying world, not only to bring you to life, here we are, but to bring us to new life by his spirit. The point of Romans 8.28, in all things we know that God works for the good of those who love him, is not to give some glib answer of how this suffering really is for your good. No, it's actually to point you to the love and the power of the Father who will make it so. Now, I'm actually pretty convinced that it's most of the time we, we can't connect the dots. We don't see how the good is going to come from this awful situation. Sometimes we, we might even be aware of it in the moment because we think, gosh, God, you're doing a work in me and although it's uncomfortable, I can see you making me like, more like Jesus. I suspect that a lot of the time, even with the value of hindsight, we're left scratching our heads. Why? God doesn't promise to show us how he will, but he certainly promises that he will. So I want to introduce you to Philip. Uh, He's one of my best mates. We're a month apart in age. Uh, We met in first year uni. We shared a bachelor pad as young men. Now there's a scary thought. He was a groomsman at my wedding. It was a wonderful day. We've been camping together. We've compared whiskey together. We've wrestled hard with the Bible. We've tracked with each other on the journey to vocational ministry. He is a wonderful Christian man with a wonderful Christian wife and three fantastic children who are growing to know and love the Lord. Just earlier this year, Philip was diagnosed with cancer. He was treated for it. That was pretty gruelling. And praise the Lord, he went into remission. But as we meet here this weekend, he's facing down a very long and dark tunnel because it's come back so quickly with such a vengeance that he faces yet another gruelling round of really intense treatment. I caught up with Philip for lunch last week. We both knew that it would be the last time that I saw him before he headed into that long, dark tunnel of intense chemotherapy, a bone marrow transplant, all sorts of side effects and no guarantee of cure at the end of it. And Philip was pretty raw about how long and dark that tunnel looks. There's no escaping that reality. But when I asked him how we could be praying for him in these coming weeks, he was crystal clear about what mattered to him. That God would use these awful times for good. That through them somehow, as if we have a clue how, somehow God might use these times to make Philip and so many of us around him, that God would work in all things to conform his children into the likeness of his son, our Lord Jesus. Because that's the kind of God that he is. He's so overflowing in love, so mighty in power, that even the worst of this life can be turned for the good of his children. Even when we can't see it, this is what it is to walk by faith in the one who loves us 
and is working out his eternal plans for us. So friends, I have clung to these words of life and hope and assurance in Romans 8. And when I ask the probing question, is it worth it? Yeah, I'm absolutely convinced. I haven't suffered anything like the Apostle Paul. And I know I haven't walked in your shoes. But I long to know the God who can make Romans 8 verse 18 true. That our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that this morning, every morning, whether it's sunshine or rain, or the darkest tunnel with an uncertain outcome, we can pray to you as our loving Heavenly Father. Thank you that you are present with us in it all, that when even we don't know what is best for us, your spirit cries out on our behalf and you continue to work with both your strength of character and your strength of hand to bring about what is good. Father, we pray that you'd help us to see what truly is for our good in the mix of everything that we strive for and chase after and long for and feel like we're missing out on. Help us to see the glory of being conformed to the image of your son that through that we might not only hold up under suffering, but we might even boldly choose the path of suffering because we long for his glory, to be bound up in it, to share it with others, and to live a life that is rock-solid sure of the glory to come when he returns. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.